I'm thrilled to have Tom come and share with us. So let's welcome Tom Steller. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Okay. I'm not an Apple representative, so sorry about that. Though I do like Apple, but uh, um, let me get organized here. So there we go. Okay, this is the, the title of our seminar, Strengthening Your Bible Study Skills. And I want to begin by just sharing a teeny bit of my own story of how I was transformed from a, a Bible ignorer into a person who is passionate about God's Word for all this, the reasons Steve mentioned. I grew up um, in a religious home, Roman Catholic home. Look back at my heritage and appreciate so much of it. But in our living room, there was a table, a coffee table. And just like many coffee tables, they have certain books on the coffee table. And our book on our coffee table was a big red Bible. I mean, it was, it was this thick, and uh, it was leather, um, and uh, I would pick that Bible up once in a while and think that I should maybe read it, even though I was born before the Second Vatican Council, and in those days, um, the Catholics weren't encouraged to read the Scripture. In 1965, they shifted and they started encouraging Catholics to read the Scripture, but um, so I had no experience of reading the Bible and no one encouraging me to read the Bible. But once in a while, I would just pick it up just to feel how heavy the book was. And I'd open it up, and the print was impossibly small. Double column, and uh, I remember trying to read it, and it was like water off a duck's back. Um, but there was really cool Italian art in this, in this Bible. Just some graphic pictures of Jesus dying on the cross and all kinds of pictures. You know, I remember a picture of um, David holding Goliath's head, you know, and, and uh, it's just this dramatic um, Italian art that was in it. And so I, I was interested to that level, but I could never read it. Continued to grow up, went to um, Catholic school, became an altar boy and was a good kid, 14 years old. Um, or 13, probably. I, it was, I, was, I was raised in the, the 60s, and so if you know history at all, the 60s have their reputation, and uh, I was part of that reputation as I began to stray from my Catholic roots and began to explore the, the world like too many teenagers do, and in those days it was, it was really radical, and so I got involved in drugs and alcohol and and just began to violate everything my parents had taught me. Um, I was arrested for shoplifting on the night of the Muhammad Ali Joe Frazier fight of the century in March of 1971. Um, and my life was just going in a direction that uh, it was not good news. Earlier, um, right as I was starting my rebellion, my oldest sister became a Christian. She met Christ. 
And she came home one day, and I remember walking in from the car from Mass, and she looked at me, and she says, Tommy, I want you to know I just became a Christian. And I said, Susie, what do you mean you're the best Christian I know? Because she was the one that didn't get in trouble. That was my definition of a Christian. You don't get in trouble. And I said, you're the best Christian I know. And she said, I've discovered that there's more to Christianity than going to church on Sundays that it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and that you can put your faith in him, your trust in him, and, and he will really forgive your sins. You don't need to go through a priest. You, don't, you can just go directly to him. And you can be assured that when you die, you will go to heaven, something I never had any assurance about. And, uh, um, and it just stopped me in my tracks when I was 14 and she, she shared that with me. But at the same time, I, I realized that if I became a Christian at 14, it means I'd probably have to stop doing a lot of the stuff I like to do. And I was going to doom myself to the most boring life imaginable. And I hated being bored. And so I said, well, I think you're right and I will become a Christian when I'm 70. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so I thought I'll have the best of both worlds. I'll live for all the gusto that life can give and all the pleasures this world can give. And then before I die, um, I will accept Christ and have my sins forgiven and be assured of heaven. And that was my plan. So the next three years, I just went the way of the world and pursued every earthly pleasure I could get my hands on and, uh, and finally realized at the end of that time. And, and, and during that time, though, my sister gave me a Bible and I tried to read it again. And uh, it was, this time it was not the big heavy red Bible. It was called, I think it was called The Way. And it was um, the, li the Living Bible. I mean, it was a paraphrase. And, uh, and it was much more easy to understand but it was still as boring to me as ever. So I went through trying to read it once, and then I tr went through trying to read it again. And, and, uh, but then finally, um, right before my 17th birthday, I realized that uh, I have everything I want. Um, you know, I, I, I had friends, I had a girlfriend, um, I had parties. I was popular. Um, I first I was gonna try to be a, a, a Minnesota twin and play for the Minnesota Twins. That was my early dream, and then my second dream was that I was gonna be a professional golfer. And uh, so I walked through and see this golf course out here. I mean, it just kind of lights a fire in me. But uh, I've lost all the skill. But uh, um, and. Uh, um, but I just, I just realized that I, was, I had the things that I wanted and uh, there was just an emptiness in me. There was a lack of purpose and uh, something happened and by God's grace, I, I finally just um, was captivated by Christ. He just, he just got a hold of me. And, uh, and one of the, cl the clearest evidences to me of a transformation was my attitude toward the Bible. Because before, when I would read it, it was just cold, it was sterile, it was boring. 
But after I embraced Christ and was filled with His Spirit, um, the Bible came alive to me. And so I would read it and read it and read it. And the first year I was a Christian, I think I read it through a couple times. From start to finish, I couldn't get enough of it. And then now I was going to get ready to graduate from high school, and I had to go to college somewhere. And uh, I was going to a church that was kind of nervous about going to college and wanted me to learn from the church. I wanted to go to a Bible school. My parents wanted me to go to a liberal arts college um, so I could get a job someday. And uh, um, But I decided to go to Bethel College in St. Paul. And, uh, and I remember going there and... Uh, I was now probably on my fourth or fifth time through the Bible, and all of a sudden, it started getting, I, I, I felt like I knew it, because I would read, and I knew it was going to happen next, and so I felt like, I know it, and, and I just, this fear now, am I going to become bored with the Bible? And, uh, but then I started taking some courses from some great professors, and uh, one professor in particular you heard Steve mention him was John Piper, and uh, he was a brand new professor at Bethel College, and and I took courses from him, and and what I encountered in his courses was a man who was very humble, and uh, and but very rigorous as a professor. He expected the most out of his students. Um, he would start each class with this this wonderful devotional thought that if something he was just reading in the word that day and then he would pray this most childlike prayer and then he would move into this most rigorous working with the text of scripture that I'd ever experienced and uh, and what happened for me as I took course after course from him was merging out of the text of scripture was a vision of God and of his purpose and the beauty of his son and the grandeur of the gospel that I never imagined. And it just grew out of the text. And there, there's a place for people to topically and systematically teach you those things. And I love that. But there's something about when you are just reading the biblical writers line by line, precept by precept, following, allowing their thought to unfold before you. Um, and just what I saw in Scripture um, under his tutelage just, just engulfed me. And, uh, and I knew that somehow I wanted to be a, um, something to do with the Word of God. I didn't know what it was. Um, so I graduated with my Bible major from Bethel College. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. So what does everybody do? They, well, they go to seminary or something else, you know. And... Uh, so I, I, I decided to go out to Fuller Seminary, and, uh, and the reason I went out to Fuller Seminary is because the man who had the most influence on John Piper was Steve's dad, Dan Fuller. And, uh, and it was Steve's dad developed a method of Bible study we call arcing. That's just a way to follow an author's train of thought. And he taught that to John Piper, and John taught that to me, 
And, uh, and then I decided I wanted to go out to Fuller just to continue to learn how to read the scripture with this kind of care. And so I went out to Fuller Seminary and uh, was uh, thrilled with um, Daniel Fuller and uh, just continued this powerful grounding me in the word of God. And then the surprise of surprise was that Dan Fuller had a son and his son had a wife. And, uh, and they became um, my wife, Julie, my just bestest friends. And uh, so... Um, uh, so what, what's really characterized my ministry um, in these last 37 years, I came back to work with John. John felt irretrievably called to leave teaching and go into pastoral ministry. When I first heard that, I thought he was crazy because he was such a great professor. But he decided that the Word of God needs more than just being analyzed. It needs to be proclaimed. And he wanted to come into it a church with old people, young people, and all kinds of people, and, and just to preach the Word of God. And so Bethlehem Baptist Church in downtown Minneapolis, right in the heart of the city, um, invited him to come and be their pastor. And then he wrote me a letter and said, Tom, would you come and work with me? And I prayed about it for about 20 seconds, maybe. Um, and uh, my wife wasn't persuaded quite so quickly. But... Uh, so then we had about, but the reason she didn't want to go is because we were so knit together. Steve and Jan just discipled Julie and me into ministry, into people-oriented ministry, just life-on-life um, -life discipleship. And, uh, and we just fell in love with this people, and the thought of leaving them was horrendous. And, uh, and so I remember once we finally, Julie decided, yes, we should go back, and, and we decided that this was what God was calling us to do. Then we had six months left in uh, Pasadena. And uh, I remember thinking, okay, should we just um, kind of just kind of quietly and emotionally withdraw from this group of people to make the, the leaving as painless as possible? And we decided, nope. Let's make it as miserable as possible. And so, so we just continued what Steve and Jan taught us was just pouring our lives into these folks' lives. And, uh, and by the time we left, that was probably one of the most emotional moments of my life was, was when they were praying for us and sending us back to Minneapolis. And, and uh, So anyway, I came back to Bethlehem with a passion to reproduce what Steve and Jan taught us in terms of life-on-life -life discipleship. And, uh, and Steve had the same passion for God's Word that, that I did. And, uh, and so I came back to Bethlehem just knowing that somehow I wanted to devote my life to teaching God's Word in whatever setting He gave it to me. And uh, so just began working with college students. And, and, uh, and it was an old inner-city church Hardly, they called me to work with college students. I said, well, here I am. Where are they? They weren't there. And, uh, and then they um, said, well, that's why we called you. And, uh, and sure enough, the college students started coming. And within a couple years, we had a group of 250 students from the University of Minnesota and Bethel and Northwest and other schools nearby and just poured the word of God into them and, and uh, taught them Archie and taught them how to do inductive Bible study, and 
and uh, missions renewal happened in 1983, and, and then I became missions pastor. But again, the passion was the Word of God is, is what changes lives. The Word of God, through the Holy Spirit's power, as it, as it exalts the person of Jesus Christ, our lives are transformed. And so, so that's been what I've tried to give myself to in these years and, and, uh, and just feel real privileged to do it and to be invited to come here to be with Steve and Jan and to see the work that God is doing here and to be a part of it is a great joy. So thank you for welcoming me so warmly. Um, so what I want to do is uh, I want to... Oh, there's my family. So uh, it's Julie and me and, and uh, got six kids and uh, two Great Danes, and uh, there should be a little Pomeranian in there somewhere, but I don't know, I don't see that little puppy, but uh, um, I've got um, four grandchildren now, and I uh, consider myself very, very blessed, and uh, it looks like the perfect Christian family, but uh, there's a lot of drama, you know, just, just like your families, a lot of drama, and uh, God is merciful, and uh, I love them. I love them dearly and miss them, and they're praying for me and praying for you as well. So this seminar is designed to teach you the necessary skills and methodology that you will need in order to study the Bible for yourself. Although there's no magic formula for doing inductive study, the following points that I'll be making summarize what I hope to do in this seminar and will start you in the right direction. So that's my goal is uh, the like, key word in there is there's no magic formula. It's not like I have a magic method for you. Um, I remember when I first learned the arcing method, I thought that was the magic method. And it's not. Whatever it is that gets you to slow down and to try to follow the author's meaning thought by thought by thought. And there's lots of ways to do that. And so I'll share, I'll share some, some ways that might, might be encouraging to you. My goal as you leave from here is not that you totally embrace my method or anything like that, but you just go home with a great motivation just to keep digging into God's Word. And uh, some of you are, are phenomenal students of the Word of God already, and I should sit in the table and you should come up here and teach. Um, and some of you are struggle to, to find excitement in reading the Word of God. I hope that God will meet you as well, and that wherever we're at, He'll just take us a little bit farther um, into the lifelong pursuit of the Word of God. Um, so before we do this, or before I start talking about um, some uh, uh, processes of inductive Bible study, I'm going to look at some texts with you. 2 Timothy 3.15, you know this text, from childhood, says Paul writing to Timothy, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Lois, his grandmother, Eunice, his mother, he's, he's talked about in 1 Timothy 1.5, godly women just poured into Timothy. Um, but he says, acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, right there. I, mean, I, I loved what Steve said at the beginning about just the, the amazing thing that we have in the Word of God. You know, there's so many important things written and are worth reading. 
whether it's a technical thing of how to take the salt out of the water and uh, to give you guys drinking water, I, I realize that's a pretty important thing. You know, what an important book that t teaches you how to do that. Um, there's lots of good and important books, and, uh, and I, I, I love reading. I love thinking about a lot of different things. But there's something absolutely unique about the Bible. And here it says, it's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's wise for salvation. Salvation. Salvation from the wrath of a holy and just God who must punish sin. But it's not only salvation from that wrath, it's salvation to this God in whose presence is fullness of joy and at whose right hand there are pleasures forever. And uh, this book is, it makes you wise for salvation. It's all through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And here's the purpose that the man of God, woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, what a comprehensive statement about Scripture. It's God-breathed. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. And uh, so every word that we have, I mean, there's nothing like it. I mean, we have no guarantee of any other book. But this book is the inerrant word of God, and we believe that for good reason. We could do a whole seminar on why we believe in the authority of Scripture. So, another text. Romans 15, 4. Paul's writing, he says, Whatever was written in former days, talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, and here's the purpose, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's the, one of the purposes of the Bible is to give us encouragement to hope in the future. And when Scripture talks about hope, it's not talking about, you know, I hope my favorite sports team is going to win the championship, which may or may not happen, and if you're from Minnesota, it hardly ever happens. <laughs> you know, that kind of hope is not what you base your life on. But when the scripture talks about hope, it talks about rock solid hope. It's our future. And scripture is to is designed to as to help us as we look into the future to be encouraged to hope. To know that our future is secure, no matter what sufferings and trials we will face in this life. So hope. John fifteen eleven, this is in the the Upper Room Discourse, we'll look at a passage more deeply um, later on from that discourse. But here Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Isn't that amazing? That my joy, I think what is Jesus talking about, his joy? What does Jesus' joy consist in? And again, if I had time to go in that direction, I'd think there's this intra-Trinitarian fellowship throughout all eternity 
prior to creation. God didn't create the world because he was lonely. He didn't create the world because he was bored. He didn't create a big video game to be entertained with called the human history. But before the foundation of the world, God was in this, this um, fellowship, this triune fellowship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And their joy was profound. And, uh, and so when they created the world, they didn't create the world to, to meet some need in God. God created the world in order to overflow in the joy that he ever had in fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and to go public with that joy, to create people in his image who could enjoy him forever. And, uh, and so Jesus says, I've... I've spoken these things to you, even though they're heavy things. Upper discourse stuff is heavy stuff because he's saying, I'm going to the cross. He says, I've spoken these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. Another key text. 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 7. Um, As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In other words, there's this strange stuff happens in the name of religion, even in the name of Christianity. Strange stuff happens. Nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. People just love to find secrets to try and interpret the Bible. So... If you can turn the letters into numbers, you can do a numerology that gets secret messages. And I mean, you, you see that kind of stuff. Um, these kinds of things give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And then he says, the goal of our instruction, this is Paul to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal. The goal of our instruction is love. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. You can become a Bible teacher and a Bible expert for wrong reasons. Paul wants is he wants this apostolic instruction his aim he's got a target on he's got he's pointing the arrow and what he wants to produce is love that springs from a good a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith so if, if your bible study is leading you to become proud and arrogant that you know so much stuff and you can, you can out-argue this person, that, that person. There's something wrong with that. But if the, if the goal of your Bible study is, I want to be a more loving person. And Paul defines love, 1 Corinthians 13, and one of the things about love is love rejoices in the truth. So I want to know truth. Not so I can puff myself up with knowledge, but so I can be transformed by that truth into a person that is truly loving. And uh, truly loving doesn't mean you accept everything and all that kind of stuff. You, you, you will have to engage in discussions where you try to persuade them that 
this is not the right path. But you do it out of love, not out of arrogance. Ephesians 3, verses 2 to 5. This is Paul writing. He says, You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I've written briefly, let's just stop there. Because Paul perhaps should be in an institution for the mentally challenged. I mean, one of the characteristics of mental illness is I get revelation. God speaks to me. And in my, in my neighborhood, um, there's, a, there's a, a slab in one of the sidewalks, and uh, forever engraved in there is, it says, in the name of God, I am Moses. And I think I, I, my heart just goes out to the person that wrote that. In the name of God, I am Moses. And we have a lot of mental illness in our neighborhood, and we have a big um, place where a lot of folks live, and, and uh, um, I, I care about people struggling with mental illness. And uh, but sometimes it gets so extreme that they just have delusions of grandeur and all of this. And so does Paul, you know, so you have to, you have to evaluate those things. And uh, we could do another course on how do you verify what the Apostle Paul says. And I think it can be verified that he wasn't crazy, that he really did meet the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he was transformed from the Pharisee of the Pharisees into the, the one who was the spearhead of the Gentile mission. Every effect must have a sufficient cause. What caused Paul, Saul, the Pharisee of the Pharisees to now become the pork-eating um, spearhead of the Gentile mission to the point where he ended up giving up his life for that. And his explanation is Christ appeared to him. And... Uh, and he writes about others. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know, Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again on the third day and he appeared to Cephas and he appeared to James and the apostles and, and he appeared to 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive now, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, go check it out. 1 Corinthians written around 50 AD, 20 years after Jesus died and rose. He said, go check it. 500 people, most of them are still alive. You can talk to them. They saw the risen Jesus. I saw the risen Jesus. Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And uh, so I, I, I think Paul should be credited and that we should listen to him. And then, so he says, the mystery was made known to me of revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. When you read this, you can perceive, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations wasn't made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what I want to stress here is Paul was a, was, had a special place in redemptive history, as did the other biblical writers. 
Old Testament and New Testament. And, uh, and they received revelation, they taught it, and they wrote it. And, uh, and so Paul then says, this is what you do with what I've written. When you read this, when you read this, the importance of reading is so incredible, of becoming good readers. This is why Christians have led the way in literacy and led the way in Bible translation and, and uh, it's just trying to spread reading as far as it can possibly be spread. And the Bible is just as relevant for oral learners. You don't have to read to hear the Word of God. Many in the New Testament, they were oral learners. They, they probably couldn't read. But he's speaking to the church in Ephesus. And he says, you as a church, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. And this is where it's good to say a word about our goal and our immediate goal in reading is to understand the author's intended meaning. Paul was jealous that we understand his insight. He's the revelatory spokesman. He's the one that received revelation. And, and then he's written it down. And then he tells us, when you read, when you read, you can understand my insight. And so, um, so instead of the Bible being a... a kind of a bunch of sayings like Hallmark cards or something else that are springboards into happy thoughts. And what does it mean to you? Oh, that's nice. What does it mean to you? Oh, something opposite. That's nice too. You know? Um, that's not what we want to do. Paul has an intended meaning behind everything he wrote, as do all the other biblical authors. And our goal is to read as carefully as we can and to come as close as we can to understanding, to perceiving the apostolic insight, which is humbling for us. It means that our ideas have to go, go at arm's length, and we have to crawl inside another person's worldview. And if it's an apostle um, who's been commissioned by the Lord Jesus, we, we welcome him telling us what to do with our sex life or what to do with our money or what to do with our relationships and it's because where else do we go Jesus you alone have words of eternal life so 2 Timothy 2.7 almost done with our key texts think over what I say Paul again says to Timothy for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So hard thinking is appropriate. Sometimes we think, well, I, I want to live by the spirit. I don't want to live by the mind. I don't think that dichotomy is really made the way that's made to sound it. Um, think over what I say. Apply the best energies of your mind to the words of the biblical writers. Think, think, think. And the Lord will give you understanding in everything. God will help you. And I, 
I think he doesn't do it by whispering in our ears the meaning of the text. I think rather it's the humbling of our heart to make us yearn for, for the truth and to go where the truth leads us as it's written down in Scripture. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say. Second Peter 3, 15 and 16. Count the patience of our Lord Jesus, or our Lord, as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. This is Peter, the Apostle Peter, writing about the Apostle Paul. So this is really interesting. He says, so he talks about beloved brother Paul, who wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. A couple things to point out. First of all, here we have a New Testament witness of Peter testifying that Paul is writing scripture. It's pretty amazing. Paul is writing scripture. And... Uh, but some things Paul wrote are hard to understand. And if they're hard for Peter to understand, um, we shouldn't be too troubled that uh, we don't always agree on everything when we interpret Scripture, do we? Some things are harder to understand. And, uh, and so don't get discouraged when understanding comes slow in some things. One of the things I love, maybe you've heard people say about the Bible, is it's just the most amazing book that the, the, the child of three or four years old can read things and understand them and be changed by them. And the scholar at the end of his life of studying and studying and studying, there are still things that are beyond him. I mean, the Bible is, it is an infinite resource. And, uh, and that's why we never need to get bored with it. If we do, the problem is with us, within us, it's not the Bible itself. And so, okay, finally, I think this is my last text. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So this is... Paul and Silas were planning the church in Thessalonica, got the church going, but had to leave prematurely because of persecution and all kinds of troubles. He says, but now they come to Berea, which is town next over, and, uh, and they, they went into the Jewish synagogue as they typically did. That was Paul's strategy, was to first go to the Jewish synagogue and engage with the Jews, persuading them that Jesus is the Messiah, usually getting kicked out. But that's the way he started. But he says, in, he says in Berea, he says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So, um, so these, so Luke in describing the Bereans, he says they were more noble or more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because when they 
heard the apostles speaking and teaching, they would, they would then go home and study for themselves to see if these things were so. And so you talk about being a Berean Bible study or a Berean student of the Bible. And that's where that comes from, is that a Berean, in our popular terminology today, is someone who studies the Scripture for themselves to see if these things are so. And so that's what we want to do. Is we want to give tools that will just motivate you and help you to study for yourselves to, so you can see when, when Pastor Steve preaches, you can take that text and you can go home and you can think about it. And, uh, and if you see something and you're not sure about it, you can talk to him about it. And then he can either say, well, this is what I saw and persuade you or you might even persuade him sometime. And we'll all be the better for it. So this is kind of a, a picture of, of both the individual study of the Bible, although Scripture says it's not a matter of one's own private interpretation. I don't think that means you don't read it in private. I think it just means that you read it in community. And you study it together. And you discuss it and you persuade each other. And not in unhealthy arguments, but in good solid giving of reasons for interpretation and working through text together. And, uh, and according to Luke, that's being noble-minded. Okay, any questions? I mean, we're a big group. If, there's anything, if anybody wants, is bold and wants to ask a quick question on any of these texts, um, I'll stop and come up for air once in a while. Um, but uh, I, welcome, I welcome your questions. So, okay, so now... What we want to do now in this first half before our break is we want to focus on the process of inductive Bible study, and then after the break, we'll, we'll do some exercises and do some practice. Okay, that's my overall hope for the, the, the morning. And uh, so, the inductive process, the process of inductive Bible study. And by inductive Bible study, it just means that you go in, you try to see for yourselves what is there, Deductive is where someone will kind of feed it to you on a spoon, and we need to be fed that way. I love being fed on the spoon, biblical truth. I love it. But there's also a place for you doing your study, you digging in deep. And uh, so our focus now is on the digging deep. You've heard the statement, you can give a man a fish and he can eat for a day, or you can teach him how to fish and he can eat for a lifetime. And so... You know, when there's preaching and teaching going on, there's, there's giving of fish, but we also really want to teach you how to fish so you can eat for a lifetime and pass on what you're learning to as many people as possible. So um, what I'm going to do is just briefly overview um, 10 steps, which sounds like it's a formula. It's not a formula. And uh, there's probably a lot more could be said. But uh, inductive Bible study, this is step one, um, requires hard work, patience, and concentration. Remember the student and the fish. To devote yourself to this kind of study, set aside substantial blocks of undistracted time. And, uh, and so I just want to challenge you. I think it's great. In my, in, in my way of thinking is I think the broad reading of Scripture is fantastic. And so I'm a big fan of Bible reading plans. 
You know, there's all these read through the Bible in a year, in all different kinds of ways. You can just get on the internet. And I think that's a great thing to do. Some people just feel kind of constrained by that. So my wife is one of those. So she's got a Bible reading plan to read you through the whole Bible, but it's called a Bible reading plan for slackards and sluggards. <laughs> and so it's the same Bible reading plan, but there's no dates by it. So you're never behind. I mean, it's brilliant. You know, so whatever it takes, you know, just to, to be in that habit of, of reading broadly, okay, to get this full scope of redemptive history and, and to know the major things in the books. And, and God can just zero in as you're reading broadly and, and just grab your heart with a certain truth that just is like gold nugget. And uh, so I love the reading broadly. But I also think there's a place for the meticulous study of passages of Scripture. And so our focus today is going to be on that, just the more the meticulous study. And, uh, and so I want to read, read you a story, okay? Um, this Remember the Student and the Fish. Some of you have already heard this story, but uh, there is an entomologist named Samuel H. Scudder. What's an entomologist? Insects. Study a, a, a master of insects. Okay. Um, the Scudder, um, he was an entomologist. He lived 1837, 1911. And uh, he wrote an account of his first learning encounter with the renowned ichthyologist. What's an ichthyologist? Fish. Ichthus. Fish. Good. With the renowned fish expert, Dr. Louis Agassiz, who lived in 1807-1873. He was the founder of Harvard University's Lawrence School of Science. And the story took place around 1859, right before the Civil War, and uh, was published anonymously in 1873. And, uh, but since then, it's become a classic of the inductive method of study that can be applied to every field of study but I think to scripture study as well. So I'm going to just read you the story. It'll just take a few minutes. It's called The Student, the Fish, and Agassiz by the Student. It was more than 15 years ago that I entered the laboratory of Professor Agassiz and told him I had enrolled my name in, sci in the scientific school as a student of natural history. He asked me a few questions about my object in coming, my antecedents generally, the mode in which I afterwards proposed to use the knowledge I might acquire, and finally, whether I wished to study any special branch. To the latter, I replied that while I wished to be well-grounded in all departments of zoology, I purposed to devote myself especially to insects. Agassiz said, when do you wish to begin? The student replied, now. And this seemed to please him, and with an energetic, very well, he reached from a shelf a huge jar of specimens in yellow alcohol. Take this fish, he said, and look at it. We call it a hemulon. By and by, I will ask what you have seen. With that, he left me, but in a moment returned with explicit instructions as to the care of the object entrusted to me. He says, no man is fit to be a naturalist, said he who does not know how to take care of specimens. 
I was to keep the fish before me in a tin tray and occasionally moisten the surface with alcohol from the jar, always taking care to replace the stopper tightly. Those were not the days of ground glass stoppers and elegantly shaped exhibition jars. All the old students will recall the huge necklace glass bottles with their leaky wax besmeared corks, half eaten by insects and begrimed with cellar dust. Entomology was a cleaner science than ichthyology. But the example of the professor who had unhesitatingly plunged to the bottom of the jar to produce the fish was infectious. And though this alcohol had a very ancient and fish-like smell, I really dared not show any aversion within these sacred precincts and treated the alcohol as though it were pure water. Still, I was conscious of a passing feeling of disappointment, for gazing at a fish did not commend itself to an ardent entomologist. My friends at home, too, were annoyed when they discovered that no amount of eau de cologne would drown the perfume which haunted me like a shadow. In 10 minutes, I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. And I started in search of the professor, who had, however, left the museum. And when I returned after lingering over some of the odd animals and stored, stored in the upper apartment, my specimen was dry all over. I dashed the fluid over the fish as if to resuscitate it from a fainting fit and looked with anxiety for a return of a normal sloppy appearance. This little excitement over, nothing was to be done but return to a steadfast gaze at my mute companion. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour. The fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around. I looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at a three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. At an early hour, I concluded that lunch was necessary. So with infinite relief, the fish was carefully replaced in the jar. For an hour, I was free. On my return, I learned that Professor Agassiz had been at the museum, but had gone and would not return for several hours. My fellow students were too busy to be disturbed by continued conversation. So slowly I drew forth that hideous fish and with a feeling of desperation again looked at it. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were forbidden. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. It seemed a most limited field. I pushed my fingers down its throat to see how sharp its teeth were. I began to count the scales in the different rows until I was convinced that was nonsense. At last a happy thought struck me. I would draw the fish. And now with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. Just then the professor returned. That is right, said he. A pencil is one of the best eyes. I am glad to notice too that you keep your specimen wet and your bottle corked. With these encouraging words, he added, well, what is it like? He listened attentively to my brief rehearsal of the structure of parts whose names were still unknown to me, the fringed gill arches and movable operculum, the pores of the head, the fleshy lips, the lidless eyes, the lateral line, the spinous fin and forked tail, the, the compressed and arched body. When I had finished, he waited as if expecting more. And then with an air of disappointment, he said, you have not looked very carefully. Why, he continued more, more, more earnestly, you haven't seen one of the most conspicuous features of the animal, which is as plainly before your eyes as the fish itself. Look again, look again, look, look, 
look. And he left me to my misery. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one new thing after another until I saw how just the professor's criticism had been. The afternoon passed quickly, and when towards its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied. I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. That's next best, said the professor earnestly. But I won't hear you now. Put away your fish and go home. Perhaps you will be ready with a better answer in the morning. I will examine you before you look at the fish. This was disconcerting. Not only must I think of my fish all night, studying without the object before me what this unknown but most visible feature might be, but also without reviewing my new discoveries, I must give an exact account of them the next day. I had a bad memory. So I walked home by Charles River in a distracted state with my two perplexities. The cordial greeting from the professor the next morning was reassuring. Here was a man who seemed to be quite as anxious as I that I should see for myself what he saw. Do you perhaps mean, I asked, that the fish has symmetrical sides with paired organs? His thoroughly pleased, of course, of course, repaid the wakeful hours of the previous night. After he had discoursed most happily and enthusiastically, as he always did, upon the importance of this point, I ventured to ask what I should do next. Oh, look at your fish, he said, and left me again to my own devices. In a little more than an hour, he returned and heard my new catalog. That is good, that is good, he repeated, but it's not all, go on. And so for three long days, he placed that fish before my eyes, forbidding me to look at anything else or to use any artificial aid. Look, 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 was his repeated injunction. This was the best entomological lesson I ever had, a lesson whose influence was extended to the details of every subsequent study, a legacy the professor has left to me and he left to many others of inestimable value, which we could not buy, with which we cannot part. So... I think that's a great story. And it's uh, a couple things to, to point out. I think it's, it was great. You know, just, he's supposed to look at this fish, and he looks at it in 10 minutes, and he says, I've seen everything. And sometimes we feel that way. You know, if you take a, four verses of the Bible, and he says, I, I got this, you know, and you've seen everything. And, and, uh, and then, um, then he looks some more, and it, it, it almost became distasteful for him, but but then, uh, then, then a key turning point was when he, when he drew the fish. And then the professor said, yes, a pencil is, 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 is someone's best eyes. I think there's something beautiful about that, about just writing. And uh, when we come to the study of the Bible, sometimes just writing out the text slows you down and you see more. So anyway, that's the story I love. I love, and uh, may the Lord use that to inspire us to look, 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 to remember the student and the fish. Okay, so that's step one, is just set aside time, you know, and it does take time. Um, you know, we can, you can read through the Bible maybe like three or four chapters a day, and that takes maybe 20 minutes. It's a great thing to do in your devotions or, 
or some other time. And, uh, but find times in, in the week, um, whether it's in the day or in the week, however you can do it, where you just have an extended time and can apply some of these things that we'll be learning and uh, it will be richly rewarding. Okay, step two. Um, I'm going to go over these kind of quick, and then these will be illustrated more as we, as we do our exercises. But we recommend studying entire biblical books if possible. Begin by reading through the books, the book in a single sitting. Um, like, say, Philippians, for example. You can read Philippians in 20 minutes. And, uh, but just, um, just, if you're going to study Philippians, maybe study the whole book and, and, uh, and then see its parts. Repeat this several times, observing every detail that is given about the author, the recipients, and the relationship between the two. From these clues and any other clues that you can find outside the book, attempt to reconstruct the occasion and purpose of the book. Please note that the author, recipients, and occasion will not always be easily recognizable. This step will be more productive in some books than others. So, so just a good way to begin is to say, say you're going to choose a book, like, like in, say, an epistle. And Philippians is nice and short, um, but it's so rich. Um, and uh, read it several times. And, uh, and then learn to take notes um, and learn to mark up the text. And so whether you do that on your regular Bible, some people um, mark up your Bible. Sometimes you have Bibles that have a page and then, and then there's a white page next to it. Have you ever seen those interleafed Bibles? That's a great, a great thing. Um, but otherwise, you can just have a notebook and, uh, and just write things down. Or now there's more and more computer programs that will help you. Um, I'm going to show you. Um, uh, oops. Let's see. Um, first of all, as I get going today, I'm going to kind of flash from slide to slide up here, and uh, and it's really dangerous that I have that capacity because um, you might get seasick. And, uh, but I'll, I'll show you what I have up here. because this, this is just my PowerPoint. It's got the basic notes, and this basically matches your handout. Okay, So that's one thing. Um, and uh, oh, this is just the, the handout itself. Um, this is a, um, a Bible study, um, online Bible study program called Bible Arc. And uh, it was designed by one of my students um, who's now serving in another place um, in this region. And, uh, and, but he has created this website. He's a, he's a programmer or a software developer, and he's created a, just the most ideal program that captures inductive Bible study. And so um, it's for free. You can sign up for it for free. If you wanted to store your work, you have to pay a subscription of $3.95 a month or something. Otherwise, you can just use it for free. But it's got word studies on it. It's got um, ways to diagram sentences. I'll show you a little bit about that. Ways to, ways to phrase, follow the phrasing, um, ways to do the arcing, and all kinds of things. So that's called BibleArc.com. So that's another one of my pages that I'll flip to. This is um, uh, 
Um, I have a Bible program. Um, this, this one is Logos. Some of you might have a Logos program. There's other great programs. There's a lot of good programs. There's three really great programs, in my opinion. There's Logos, there's Accordance, there's Bible Works, and, uh, and they are used by everyday people studying the Bible as well as scholars, and uh, it's got all kinds of resources. So you'll see me flipping to this once in a while. And, uh, and then this is um, a PDF of, of a course called Mining God's Word, and uh, basically, the seminar that I'm giving here is, is kind of a, a summary of that course. And uh, I tell you that because um, I, I don't want you to feel like you have to take every single note here today because um, you can download the PDF of this course for free. And uh, that's listed on the back um, of your, your handout. And uh, so... Let's see, it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Mining God's Word, a free download. So you can just go to that site and just download it. And, uh, and so that, everything I say is going to be on there and elaborated on a lot more. And uh, you'll hear me refer a little bit to Philippians as we go today. And Philippians, Philemon and Philippians are the laboratory that this course works through. So, Yes. Uh, and Bible works, that's two words, Bible works. Yeah, those are both, all three of those are, are, are very good programs, and uh, I could talk to anybody about these programs if, if that would be helpful, but um, just a word about that is, you know, when you think, think well, I, you know, I, don't, I don't have a lot of money to put into this kind of stuff, and, and, uh, and I don't think these are necessary for every single person. But uh, if there really is something to invest in, it's the study of the scriptures that make you wise unto salvation. You know, it sounds like that's not a bad investment. You know, you, you spend all kinds of money on all kinds of things, but to buy a good Bible program um, can be really helpful, and especially for doing inductive Bible study. Um, so anyway, um, good. Okay, so that's what I'll, so I'll be flipping through these different things, and uh, I'll try not to make you too sick here. So, okay, I got to watch time. We're going to take a break at some point, and if anybody needs to get up and use the restroom, um, feel free to do that at any time, and, uh, but I think we'll take a break just a little bit after 11 o'clock. We'll see how, how we do. Okay. Um, so going back to uh, uh, Philippians, um, uh, second here. Um, uh, okay, wait a second. I got to get it smaller. Sorry. Um, can you still see it back there at this size? Okay, good. Um, I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about in that, in that step number two is um, just to find a way to just to, to mark up your text. And, uh, and so this is what I did with Philippians. 
And uh, the first thing I did is I went, went through, as one of my read-throughs was to look at everything it says about the author. Okay, and it says it's Paul and Timothy. Later on, you'll realize it's really Paul that's writing because he writes about Timothy in the letter, but he identifies with, with Timothy. So everything that's about Paul and Timothy has got this squiggly line, this red squiggly line, and you can do it with, with uh, your printout of a Microsoft doc, you know, doc um, and, uh, and use colored pencils or something like that. So um, I think that's got the gold squiggly line is something about the Philippians because I just want to learn more about Paul, what he says about himself. And uh, he, t he talks quite a bit about himself in Philippians, not in a prideful way, but just you learn a lot about him and, uh, and a lot about the Philippians. Um, and then all these other markers, I won't describe what they are, but they all mean something to me. And, uh, and so I, I just read through the text and I'm marking it up. And uh, um, uh, like one of the things that I, I, I did is, is one of the things that I look for when I read through, when I look at a passage is I look for the commands because um, one of the things that we'll talk a little bit more about is discerning the main point of a paragraph. You know, a paragraph of Scripture is how do you discern what the main point is or, or of, a, of a whole letter. I mean, usually it's, it's, it's at the command level. Is that, that's what the author is. He wants, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. So he's, he, he wants to, to move the the church forward in some act of obedience or whatever. And so that's kind of the, the high-level point. And then you see how that is undergirded by just the truth of the gospel and the incentives and warnings and promises and all kinds of things. So one of the things I like to do with Philippians is, is to go through and find out all the, all the things that are on the command level. So I did those in purple. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And, uh, and uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind. And it's, it's interesting, you can kind of get to get a flavor of what he's really after in the church in Philippi. You know, the, 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 the church in Philippi um, showed great love for Paul and, uh, and they sent a gift to him um, with Epaphroditus, one of their messengers, and they send Epaphroditus down to Paul in Rome. And, uh, and so one of the purposes for Paul to write to the Philippians is to acknowledge that he received that gift. But then we learn in Philippians that while Epaphroditus was there, um, Epaphroditus probably just told him, Paul says, how's the church doing? And, and, and Epaphroditus gave a basically a positive report, but he says, yeah, there's... there's there's some struggle with, with unity. There's, there's some conflict. Um, Yodi and Syntyche are having a hard time. And, uh, and so Paul incorporates that into his letter um, back to them about just rejoicing in their gift and who they are and just loving this church. My crown and my joy, he calls them. I mean, just incredible language. But, um, but he also is... Uh, encourage them to really live in harmony, and so you can you can see that develop. You know, let your manner of life be wor worthy of the gospel. 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are, and this is, this is the, the aspect of the life worthy of the gospel that he's focusing on. There's all kinds of things he could say, but he says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightening anything by your, your opponents. So even there you can see him beginning to talk about this, this unity. And the uh, next place the command level comes up is uh, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of, of one mind. And then he tells how to do that. Don't, be, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's a crucial part of unity, isn't it? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, have this, this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then you've got this glorious statement about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. And so you, you just see how Paul is using this incredible theology and Christology to undergird his appeal to them to be united and harmonious side by side in the gospel. So you just go, go through it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So again, you see what his concern is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And uh, he says, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Um, goes on, rejoice in the Lord. Comes up again, rejoice in the Lord. And here it is, I entreat Yodi and in, Syntyche in, in to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. He's not shaming them help these. They've labored side by side with me in the gospel. These are two wonderful, godly women who are just incredible partners in the gospel. And surprise, surprise, sometimes um, there's conflict. <laughs> and not that you guys would ever know that, but uh, um, I know that from being a pastor for Global Outreach for so many years at Bethlehem. And, and uh, I, I know the tests and the trials. And uh, but then he keeps saying, rejoice. But he always says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. If your happiness is found in God, our tolerance level for each other can go way up. If our happiness is found in each other, ultimately, um, we get disappointed pretty easy. And, uh, and so you just see this beauty of Philippians unfolding. So th this is just an example of my my second point of, of uh, going through when your initial read, reads and, and seeing what it says about the author, about the recipients, then about the occasion. Why was the letter written? In other words, what were the conditions in the church that caused Paul to write certain things? So what's the occasion? And then what's the purpose? What does Paul want to come out of his letter? And uh, so that you can kind of discern as you read and read and read, and then as you do the meticulous study too, it'll 
it'll be enhanced. Okay. Again, feel free to stop me. I'm going to go a million miles an hour, but you stop me if that would be helpful. Um, let's see. Okay. So, step three. We strongly encourage you to write down all your observations and ideas. Not only will this discipline, for, this discipline force you to be clearer, but it will also provide you with a record of your study that you will benefit from long after you finish. So let your pencil be your second pair of eyes. So draw the fish. Write down notes. Write down observations. Write down questions. Talk a little bit more about questions later. So that's step three. Step four, once you've grasped the basic content and thrust of the book, attempt to discern its structure. Notice major divisions and minor divisions within the text and constantly ask yourself what the author is doing in each new section. Compose a chart or outline or otherwise present the structure of the book. And, uh, and this is just your basic outline. This is, um, uh, let's see if I can find an example. Let's see if I can get... See, every time I, I use one slide, it, they don't stay in the same order. That's why I'm going back and forth all the time. That's a cruel trick. I don't know why they do that. But uh, um, oh, maybe I don't have an outline here. Oh, yeah, I know where I have an outline. Uh, just a second. I'll just show you an example. I'll go over to this one. Um, and uh, that's probably going to make you sick, too. I'm, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Yeah, okay, I'm getting there. I know there's better ways to do it. My students are always telling me, if you just do this, it's going to be so much easier for you. And I, and I always thank them, and I always forget what they tell me. So here's an example of a, just a, an outline of Philippians. You know, there's three big structures. There's an introduction, and then there's kind of the body of the letter, and then there's a conclusion. But then you'll notice that there's really kind of subdivisions under each section that I think you can discern on your own through your own study. So that's what I encourage you to do is just to develop your own outline, you know, just, just so you can kind of structure it and, and see where, where, uh, where is one thought kind of transition into another thought. And, uh, and then once you've got the outline, you might say, okay, I'm going to spend the next two weeks studying through Philippians. And... On Sunday, I'll, I'll do 1 through 11. And on Monday, I'll do 12 through 26. Or you might say, I'm going to spend a whole year in Philippians. So I'm going to spend January in 1 through 11. And you can do, do it that way. But it's just kind of a way of systematically working through, um, working through the, uh, the text. Okay. So... Um, Step four, once you have grasped the basic content and thrust of the book, attempt to discern its structure. Okay, we did that. Um, process, um, step five, after gaining something of an understanding for the book as a whole, begin to study through the book section by section as determined by your outline. I talked about that. As you study each section, remember the principles and employ the strategies listed below. So the, the, the next section of my presentation is going to unpack step five. There's three, three principles I'll pass on, and there's ten um, strategies that I'll, I'll pass on to in quick review form 
before we go and practice and, and see for ourselves. So, employ these strategies you interpret roughly following the order in which they are listed below. It's essential to do your own study before consulting secondary literature. Um, the bulk of your time will be in, invested in this step. So we'll come back to unpack step five. But uh, what I tell my students, um, both at the lay level at the church as well as the, at the seminary level and the college level is, is um, first do your own work. Don't, don't just habitually go right to the commentary. I love the ESV study Bible or the new NIV study Bible. I think those are fantastic tools. I wish, I wish everyone had one. I wish we get one of those into every English speaker in the world. And uh, I mean, the, the notes are so helpful. But the danger is, is that you just go immediately to that. And uh, I used to, you know, the, the, one of the first set of study notes in the Bible was the Ryrie study notes, the Ryrie study Bible. And the trouble is that people began to think of the, the notes as inspired as the text of Scripture. And so when you have it in the same book, you have to watch that. The notes are our best attempt to do interpretation, but it's the text itself that we're dealing with. So, so in, in inductive Bible study, we say, boy, take advantage of secondary resources, but only after you've done your own work. See as much as you can see. Just like it said in, 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 in the Agassiz and the fish and the student is, is, is you couldn't use magnifying glasses, you couldn't use this, you couldn't use that. Everything was, all you had was your eyes and a, and a pencil. And you could study that way. Okay. Um, step six, when you finish studying through the book, section by section, it's helpful to summarize the message of the book in your own words. And uh, again, if you download the PDF, you can, get, you can get a great summary of Philippians. That's just like a, a page long that um, is helpful. And it's, but it's, you might write the summary a little bit different, and that's okay. But, uh, but again, it's just, it's just you're, trying to, you're, tr you're trying to see the, the whole of what the author is saying by looking at his parts and then seeing how the parts fit into the whole, and then you'll be able to articulate both the whole and its parts. Um, assess what you've learned about the book as a result of your study. To this end, it's helpful to write down everything you know about the book before you begin. And when you finish summarizing the book at the end of the process, compare your final summary, summary with your, your beginning. And uh, so I like to have students say, okay, we're going to study Philippians or we're going to study Ephesians or whatever. And before they start, just write down everything you know about Ephesians. And uh, usually it's not very much, or usually it's jumbled, or usually they bring in verses from other parts of the Bible or whatever. But, but once you've been through an inductive study and you come to the other side, you can, you can write down something pretty coherent. And uh, it's a good way to, to test if you've made progress. Step seven is make constant application of what you're learning. Again, our, our purpose in inductive study is not to get head knowledge that we can be proud about, but it's, 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 it's a transformed life. And so we want to live out what we're learning. Do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers also, James says. The one who is a hearer of the word is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, and once he's looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. 
But one who looks intently at the perfect law and abides by it, he becomes fruitful and so forth. So, okay. Um, step eight, memorize as much material as you can while you study. And uh, give particular attention to verses that strike you as convicting, encouraging, useful, or otherwise significant. Memorizing the word will allow you to meditate on it throughout the day, quote it to others in evangelism, or for encouragement, review the verses that you memorize periodically so that you don't forget them. And, uh, and what I've learned by doing inductive Bible study where I'm following the author's train of thought, it's easier to memorize paragraphs because it's, I've already lived in them. And, uh, and so I think mem memorizing can, can really grow out of, of, of this inductive study because you've, you've thought it through proposition by proposition and for some reason it's easier to tuck it away and memorize it. And, uh, and so I think to store as much word in our hearts is what we want to do, you know. How shall a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed thereto according to your word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, 9 and 11. I memorized that back in 1972. The Navigator's Topical Memory System, King James. So I have a whole slew of verses that are still there. And, uh, and so, um, so that's a good thing to do. But it's, it's also good to, so that was the topical memory. So you, you memorize topics with three or four verses, like fellowship and three or four verses, you know, and, and witnessing and those kinds of things. And that's good. But uh, what I've learned also through inductive Bible study and looking at units of scripture it's been easier for me to memorize paragraphs or, or even whole letters. Um, and uh, um, one of our professors just recited the book of 1 Corinthians um, in a chapel, and then later he did it. We had, him, we had him do it as a sermon. So that was his sermon. Was he just recited the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And, uh, and it wasn't a pride thing. It was just, just love the word. And, and, uh, and so and he was able to say it as if he was Paul talking to the churches. You know, it was really, it was really very powerful. So it can be done. Process of inductive Bible study. Inductive Bible study must be continuously bathed in prayer. God grants insight, understanding, and humility through prayer. So before you start ask for God's help and guidance. During your study, turn your questions into prayers for illumination and your discoveries into prayers of praise. If you see something that you hadn't seen before, just say, Lord, thank you. I've never seen this before. And uh, just this morning, I can't remember now, but uh, I just saw something I'd never seen before. And uh, my memory is not as good as it used to be. But, uh, but I, just, I just turned it into praise. Um, then after you finish, ask the Lord to help you walk by the Spirit in accordance with the Scripture you've contemplated. So you pray before, during, and after. And uh, um, Paul says, pray without ceasing. And, 
And I don't think that means that you have to be saying the Our Father constantly. Um, I think it means to maintain a, 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 a disposition of dependence on the Lord and receptivity to Him and easily going into prayer, easily expressing thanks. And uh, I remember Steve's dad talking about praying without ceasing. And uh, I think it was he that said that, uh, you know, it, it might be that you know, there's, there's certain things that you're doing, like if you're in a certain critical point of your brain surgery, you really have to be totally focused on making that connection. And so you might not be articulating a prayer at that moment, but you're still doing it in a spirit of dependence. And, and right before you're doing it, I said, Lord, help me, man, if I mess this up, Father, help me to, help me to get this right. And then you focus in, you do it, and, and oh, you're connected. The heart's still beating. Thank you, Lord. You're so gracious. You know, just to live in that kind of relationship with the Lord. And then process, uh, and number 10, step 10, consider discussing with others or teaching what you're learning. If you have a study partner or participate in a group study, you'll certainly benefit from the accountability and encouragement others can provide. If you have the opportunity to teach others, perhaps leading a Bible study, you'll be forced to work harder and present your ideas more clearly. Studying the Bible does not end in private application. The Word of God must be proclaimed. And so don't, don't think to say, well, I'm not a teacher, so I can't really teach people. I think, I think we all can teach. And not, you might not all be um, the person that gets up and preaches or teaches a big number of people or whatever, but if you've learned something, just practice talking it and speaking it to someone else. You know, and whether it's to your children or whether it's to your neighbor or whether it's to whoever. So, okay. So that's kind of the overall process. You can go back to those and uh, if you want to read more about those, you can, you can download the PDF. But uh, I want to keep going for a little bit longer. Um, and I'm just going to just go quickly over some principles and some strategies and then we'll come back and we'll just practice together after break. So three principles for sound interpretation. Um, historical interpretation. The Bible was written thousands of years ago in a different culture and language. Remember this as you attempt to discern the author's intended meaning. So just acknowledge that. It was written in a different setting, a different culture, a different language, and uh, and we care about that. To me, that's one of the beauties. That it's not, it wasn't just a magical book that was just kind of floated down from heaven somewhere. But it, 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 it's like the incarnation. That God entered into time and space. And he um, encountered us. He came to be with us. And he inspired um, everyday, ordinary people. Um, so that they were fishermen. Peter was a fisherman, you know, and, and James was a, the brother of Jesus, a carpenter's son. You know, just everyday people, God invaded in the best sense of the word and inspired them to write his word, but they spoke in language conventions that were from that time, and they, they 
We're addressing situations from that time. And so we just need to realize that's part of the beauty of the way Scripture is, is that God has invaded time and space, and, uh, but it adds some complexity to our study. Um, second um, principle is contextual interpretation. The Bible was written in coherent units that often build an argument or develop a theme. Pay attention to what surrounds your focus of study. And we've all heard, be sure to read the Bible and read the verses in context. If you're pulling verses out of context and making them mean something that doesn't really fit with that context, you're doing something that's illegitimate. Read in context. And so um, you read in its historical context, but you also read it in its grammatical context. And so, um, you know, follow the author's thought line upon line, precept upon precept, and, uh, and, and see, see things in context. Literary interpretation. The Bible is a collection of many different literary genres, each with its own rules of interpretation. Learn these rules and interpret carefully. Um, the way you read a proverb is different than the way you read an epistle. The way you read something apocalyptic is different than the way you read narrative. In other words, you need to understand the, the genre in which it's written. And uh, one of the books that I think has been very helpful to a lot of people is... Um, uh, Gordon Fee, Fee and Stewart have written a book called, and it's, I think it's, it's in the resource section at the end. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And, uh, and that's what they focus on, is trying to give, give students guidance in how to um, read the different genres of Scripture. And, uh, and, and so I, that's something we won't focus a lot on here. Um, but uh, is, is important. Okay, so those are the three principles. Historical interpretation, contextual interpretation, literary interpretation. Now, 10 strategies for studying the text, and then we'll take a break. And uh, some of these I'll just go over real briefly, and, uh, um, and then we'll practice them to see, see them more. Number one, just create a sentence flow. That's one of the things that we'll, we will show you what to do, but just how to break up a paragraph into its, its thoughts and then how to notice how the one thought leads to the other. That's creating a, a sentence flow. Um, but we'll, I'll, I'll illustrate that. That'll become more helpful. Record your observations. That's self-explanatory. Um, although... One of the things that I so value from this method of study that, um, that Steve's father created called arcing is, is that you record um, your understanding of the flow of the text in a way that you can look at it 20 years later and it'll remind you of how you thought through the text at that time. And so it, it's, just a, it's a way to remember and to visually represent um, your understanding of the flow of the text. I'll give you an example of that later on. Discerning the main point, we want to um, say, what, what is the high point of this paragraph? 
What's the main thing and how do the other parts fit in? List relative, relevant questions. Um, just the art of asking questions of the text. I don't know if you remember the story about was Martin Luther celebrating his 500th anniversary of the pounding of the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Gate. And, uh, and, and um, Luther was a, a monk, and, and, uh, but he finally got drawn to the Word of God, and, and, uh, and he started reading, I think it was Romans 1.16, I think that was the text, but you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and the salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he looked at that and he said, how can that be? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. He said, I've never thought about that before. How can that be? And it said that he just pounded and pounded and pounded on the text until he could make sense out of it. Because for him, the righteousness of God meant damnation, judgment. God is a holy, righteous judge. How can that be part of the gospel and then he finally realized that this righteousness was a gift of God that God gives to us and he justifies us because of that gift so salvation is a gift it's not something we earn and uh, so we Edward, I mean Luther just pounded the text to see as much as he could see. And uh, he raised questions, how can this be? So um, that was one thing that uh, John Piper really stressed. He said that we, we, I remember when we, before we graduated, we had a party to thank him for teaching us. And we had a, drew a, gave him a t-shirt with magic marker arcs on it or something. It was not very well done. Um, but on the back it said, asking questions is the key to understanding. And he created an environment in his class where students felt so free to pose and ask questions, both of the text and of the professor and of each other. And so it's not a shameful thing to ask questions. It's not a shameful thing to say, I don't get this. Or, you know, he says this here, but he says this over here. How does that fit together? So you articulate a question, and then instead of running to the commentary, you first say, I'm going to dig and dig and dig and get as far as I can in answering that question. And once you come to an answer, you say, okay, now I'll check it out and see if what, what this smart person said over here. And then you can, maybe he saw things you didn't see, and so then you'll change. Or perhaps you might have seen some things he didn't see or she didn't see. And so it's a dialogue. Okay. Check all the cross-references. You know, it's good to check cross-references. Um, those are given to us for a good reason, especially when you're reading New Testament and it's using the Old Testament. You know, I... Sometimes you, you, you see how the, the authors of the New Testament use a scripture, a scripture verse and you see where it comes from in Isaiah or some other place and you say, how does that work? 
seems like they're just kind of pulling it out of context. And then you think, well, I can pull stuff out of context too if they can. Um, but what you need to realize is I don't think they're pulling stuff out of context at all. I think the New Testament writers were profound readers of the Old Testament. And what you have to realize is that oftentimes when they're pointing back to an Old Testament text, it's like a bookmark. And they're saying, yeah, don't just read this verse, read the whole context and read how it fits into the, the rest of the flow of Isaiah and so forth. That they, they have high expectations of their listeners and their readers, that they know the Old Testament. So check the cross-references. They're really helpful. Paraphrase the logic. We'll give an example of that. But uh, that's where, you know, I, I think um, sometimes it's good when you're reading you, you want to, you realize that they're talking in more abbreviated form sometimes. Like if I was to say, um, the hotel is on fire, get out. Um, I'm leaving out the connecting words. What connecting words am I leaving out? The hotel is on fire, get out. Hmm? Therefore, yeah, or so, that since the, since the hotel is on fire, therefore get out. So, but sometimes we speak in ways that are more abbreviated. The hotel is on fire, get out, and it communicates clearly, we understand. We, we understand that the first proposition is giving the ground or the reason for the inference of the second one. But... We don't have necessary time to talk about all that stuff, and so we just put two and two together, and we get out. And uh, but and and the scripture does that too. Is that I mean, especially in the epistles, um, the author is so good at giving you conjunctions and connecting phrases that connect thoughts to each other. And I, when we do our exercise, I'm going to show you how important it is to pay attention to those. Um, but you'll notice also other times they don't. But it's not because there's no connection. It's because they just assume the house is on fire, get out. They assume you're going to fill in the blanks. And, uh, but I think it's a good discipline to do a paraphrase to make it explicit how you're understanding the flow of thought. So I'll give you some examples of that. Compare different translations. Um, here, I'll give you an example of this one. Um, let's see. Here's some, something. Um, Compare different translations. Um, uh, Luke 22, 31. Yeah, that's a fun one to, to compare. Um, but uh, um, I think it's good just to, I mean, in English, it's amazing the plethora of translations that we have. And we could feel guilty because there's so many people that don't have translations. And, but rather than feeling guilty, let's just get about the business of getting the Bible translated in every language. But don't bemoan the fact that God has blessed us with so many translations. But it, I think it's helpful sometimes for us to compare the translations and, uh, and to realize, um, I'll just say just a little, little bit about Bible translation is, is um, there's different, different theories of Bible translation. 
And uh, it's not even so much that one is better than the other, but it's just different approaches to translation. So there's, there's, there's an approach that's like a word-for-word -word translation, and then there's a, um, an approach that's more idea-for-idea -idea translation. And, uh, and so, um, and then, so then there's kind of a continuum. And at the far end of the continuum is what's called a paraphrase. So can you think of what are some paraphrases today that we use? The message is one. Yep. And uh, New Living Translation is a paraphrase. And, uh, and sometimes serious Bible students just poo-poo those. I think they're great. But realize that a paraphrase is, is, is almost like a commentary. But it's got value, and it's refreshing to read it sometimes, and it's interesting, and it might be really helpful. I probably wouldn't make that my, what I do my meticulous Bible study out of. Um, on, the, on the other end are the word-for-word, the word, um, which is more like the King James was word-for-word, um, the, the New American Standard is more word-for-word, word. The, the ESV, English Standard Version, is more word-for-word. Word. And then there's some that are kind of more in the middle, like the NIV or the, um, the TNIV, um, that are kind of this di dynamic equivalence where it'll be more, a little bit more idea for idea, not quite as literal. And they all have their place and all have their value, so I'm not trying to shame you if you're using one translation rather than another. But for a meticulous, inductive Bible study, I would lean us in this direction to, to go to um, the word for word, because um, I think that'll help, help a little bit more. But uh, here's an example of just um, comparing um, translations. Um, uh, let's see, start with the New American Standard. Um, Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, this is the Last Supper. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. So that's a good literal translation. Um, but um, if you if you read it in um, Here's one, one place where I think the King James is more helpful. Because one thing that contemporary English doesn't do, that old English did do, was it differentiated between you as singular or you as plural. So here, it just sounds like Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. So it so sounds like he's saying he's demanded permission to sift you, Peter, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. But look at the King James. The King James says, the Lord, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Um, but I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So what the King James allows us to see is that in the, in the Greek, the first you is plural. So Simon, Simon, Satan has de desired to, to have you, that he may sift you, 
all you disciples like wheat. But then Jesus zeroes in on Peter and he says, um, but I have prayed for thee. In other words, I prayed for you singular. I prayed for you, Peter. That, that you, Peter, your faith, Peter, might not fail. And when you are converted, returned, repented, strengthen your brothers. So that's a different nuance. That's something you'd like to, to see and think about. So if you look at other translations, how they deal it, um, uh, RSV doesn't d differentiate. Um, it's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, so it doesn't, you can't really tell. Sometimes you can with footnotes. Um, but uh, let's look at um, the NIV. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Okay, so it's the same. Um, is the TNIV any different? Nope. See what the TNIV has done. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. So you see what they did? So that's the way they made the plural. All of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. That's not in the text. But the translators put it in there to help you understand. And... Uh, and I think they made the right decision. I think that is a helpful thing to do, um, that your faith may not fail. Um, so, um, so then you go, go to one like, um, let's see. The, let's see what the message does. Simon, Simon, stay on your toes. <laughs> Satan has tried his best to separate all of you from me. So see, they're, they're spelling it out to separate you, sift you, to separate all of you from me like chaff from wheat. Simon, I prayed for you in particular that you not give in or give out. When you have come through the time of testing, turn to your companions and give them a fresh start. <laughs> I love the message, you know, and, uh, and there it was helpful. You know, it steered me down a good path. But... Um, so anyway, that's, that's one of the values of, 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 of seeing translations and, and uh, um, yeah. So, and obviously, you know, for some of you, not everyone is meant to learn Greek and Hebrew, but some of you are wired up in such a way that you desire to do that. And there's great benefit to doing that. And it doesn't put you in a high priestly class that everyone else bows to and say, well, tell me what the Greek says. You know, because most of us can just see through careful study what's being said. But, uh, but there is advantages of, of learning Greek, and that you'd see crystal clear in the Greek text immediately. Okay, how are we doing? Um, well, I think, we're, I think we're doing great, but we're gonna take a, I think we're going to take a break. And uh, we'll come back and finish the, the quick summary, and, uh, and then we will uh, practice.